Welcome to the AKC Podcast, an audio resource for staff at King's College London following the Associateship of King's College programme. The AKC is an inclusive, research-led programme of lectures which explores diverse religious and cultural perspectives. For more information, visit kcl.ac.uk forward slash AKC. This semester's lecture series, entitled Power to the People, Identity, Difference and Inequality, has been coordinated by Dr Kate Kirkpatrick. Handouts, presentation slides and further reading links for this lecture are available on the AKC Keats area. Okay, in this lecture, Grime, Drill and Gospel, Speaking Truth to Power, we're going to do three things. We're going to evaluate a claim made by the deceased rapper Nipsey Hussle. We're going to mediate this claim through the lenses of prophetic criticism. And as we go along, you'll come to understand that prophetic criticism is an evolution of the prophetic tradition of the Old Testament. And then we're going to engage in a comparative analysis. We're going to compare three genres within black urban music for their prophetic value. And these are contemporary gospel music, grime, and the drill genres. Although these genres are not completely hermetically sealed, they overlap, but we're going to work with them in those categories for the sake of this lecture. The fundamental and defining question that we're going to address is, is rap music more prophetic than other urban genres? That's the question we're going to go in search of. So let's begin by dealing with the claim, the claim made by Nipsey Hussle in the track dedication from the Victory Lap LP. There's just a snippet here where halfway through the track he begins to reflect on the spirituals and on slavery and and alludes to two powerful tropes within black Atlantic culture. Now I normally teach black theology and black studies so we're allowed to use the n-word in those contexts but I wasn't sure how it worked out here so I am uh, editing it out just to be uh, safe. Nipsey is folding two powerful discourses into each other. The first are the spirituals. Spirituals which emerge out of African-American slavery are a powerful discourse, a powerful reflection on enslavement and resistance to enslavement. But he's also linking it to the middle passage. He talks about the waves and swimming against the waves. As scholars have pointed out, the spirituals are not just one type. The fundamental theme within the spirituals is their double voice. They signify, they may talk on one level about heaven, about the life to come, about spirituality, about Jesus, but on another level in code, they are songs of resistance. Go down Moses on one level, revives, retells the story of the Exodus, but on another level, it is fundamentally concerned with God intervening in history to free oppressed people. (laughs) Steal away, which we know at a song, which talks about going to be with Jesus on one level, but on another level, the song is fundamentally concerned with escaping the plantation. The double meaning of the spiritual. So for Nipsey to be calling upon this trope is to reference a powerful theme within black Atlantic culture, the idea of music being concerned with resistance and specifically resistance from oppression. The other theme that he registers is the middle passage. 
It is the moment where African bodies are manufactured into enslaved people, according to Marcus Redeker. But it is also the moment where pan-Africanness emerges because out of those disparate groups of people that are packed in on slave ships, we get a common connection. And out of that common connection emerges some of the first rebellions that take place in black Atlantic culture. So Nips is referencing some powerful tropes here. Before we examine the claim, let's just place this within a wider context in terms of theological analysis. When theologians explore the relationship between culture, like hip-hop or popular culture, and theology, we're engaging in religious cultural criticism, the relationship between culture and theology. And traditionally, when theologians address this issue, they go back 50 years to the work of Niebuhr. Niebuhr argued that there were three basic relationships between Christ and culture. The first is Christ against culture. This basically presupposes that culture has no value and that Christ is dominant and above it. The second approach is the opposite. It celebrates culture and suggests that cultural traditions are part of the created order and therefore have something to offer and present to theology. The third category, Christ above culture, concerns a number of dialogic positions. The first is a synthesis, the idea that you can merge together aspects of theology and aspects of culture. The second is a paradox, which separates the two, sees them as being parallel relationships. And the third, which most theologians engage with, is the idea that Christ is the transformer of culture. And what this means in essence is that there's a dialogue between culture and theology for the sake of transformation, transforming both disciplines and transforming the social world. So you can see how Nipsey Hussle and reflecting on him theologically fits into this third category. Can hip-hop be a greater representation of the prophetic than gospel music. It works within this wider category. But before we go any further, we must remember also that when we're talking about culture and theology, these categories are inside of power relationships. Culture is not neutral. Sociologists tell us that it's shot through with issues of power, issues of contestation. And in terms of African-Caribbean, African-American, West African cultures, there's a tradition of theology being bound up with white cultures, white European cultures, and particularly a dominant form of whiteness which was used to suppress black bodies on plantations in West African colonial societies and in North America. So we have to be aware that when we're talking about culture and theology, culture is not neutral, and neither is theology neutral. Theologians recently have come to terms with this fact that theological ideas are colonised They're related to histories of disempowerment of black and brown bodies. And therefore, there's a need to re-examine the discipline of theology and take it apart, decolonize it, in order to find more appropriate ways of thinking about the meaning of God within the world. The book, White Jesus, for example, deals with what they term the architecture of racism and religion in theological education, a recognition that the very structures of theological discourse are influenced and impacted by whiteness and white skin colour privilege and, in places, white supremacy. So, religion and culture is not a neutral discipline. It's, It's contested. What we're trying to do 
is what the artist Faisal Abdullah, Abdu Allah, is attempting to do within this piece of work. Recognize that culture is conflicted, it's diverse, it's split in terms of gender, sexuality, age, ethnicity, religions, and find ways in which you can have a more holistic engagement with culture. And this analysis that we're engaging with today is part of this tradition. Let's mediate the claim then. Let's find a way in which we can evaluate this claim that hip-hop, the spirituals, they are resistant songs. We're going to use the concept of the prophetic to mediate it. When we talk about the prophetic, we are talking about the 8th century biblical pro prophet. For the birth of Christ, Israel was in turmoil. It was being radically affected by economic inequality. The rich were getting richer, the poor were getting poorer, and the rich were exploiting the poor, brutalizing them. Within the midst of this chaos, God sends messengers, and the message that they have is one of justice, of freedom, of equality. And so consequently, when theologians talk about the category of the prophetic, we're referring to the moment that God intervenes in human history for the sake of justice. It's a notion of the prophetic. To be prophetic isn't just to dream about the future, say what's going to happen next, as is the case in some churches. Pentecostal church folk will know about this tradition where the prophetic is often seen as just literally foretelling, saying what's going to happen in the future. Well, there's another tradition within the prophetic, which is speaking truth to power. The prophets address the injustice. They confront the political structures. The prophetic doesn't die with the prophets. It's appropriated in the Black Atlantic. Classic example of this is Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King is imprisoned in 1963, writes the letter from a Birmingham jail, and he quotes Amos 5.25, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. If you get the opportunity to visit the African American Museum of History and Culture in Washington, there is a this side, uh, with water flowing from the ceiling, with that quote from Martin Luther King behind it, reaffirming the connection between the prophetic and black emancipation. But it doesn't end there. The philosopher Cornel West reworks the prophetic into a critical framework for analysis, what he calls prophetic criticism. He argues that the prophetic has moved beyond the boundaries of the church synagogues and the synagogue, uh, the cathedral, and finds itself in popular culture outside of religious traditions. And therefore, he develops a more neutral way of framing the prophetic. And this is the measure we're going to use to address these genres. He says the prophetic consists of four parts. First, an analytic grasp of past and present, which is really about a historical analysis or historical references. The second is empathy, the ability to make a deep connection with the subject or the issue that you're dealing with. If you've studied any, studied any feminist epistemology, then you know that empathy is part of feminist and womanist, black feminist ways of knowing, making those deep connections. Identifying contradictions is the third one, showing where things don't quite match up and where ideas are obfuscating reality. And the final one, engendering hope. Because the prophets at the end of their speech dealt with hope, the category of hope. This is what is humanly possible. So we're going to use these four metrics to see how rap compares with other genres. But before we do that, I want to show you how Cornell West inscribes the prophetic 
in his everyday speech so that his words make these four connections. Very few people can do this, but I guess if you're a university professor at Harvard, it's um, uh, second nature. This is Cornel West critiquing Barack Obama's use of Martin Luther King's Bible during the second inauguration. And as you'll see, he touches on issues of history, contradiction, deep empathy with the poor, with minorities, and more than anything else, identifying where hope can be located. I hope the volume is all right on this. It wasn't um, uh, great a few minutes ago, but hopefully you should be able to pick it up. It lasts for about four and a half minutes, um, so bear with me. But uh, no, when, when I got the news that my dear brother Barack Obama, President Obama, was going to put his precious hand on Martin Luther King Jr.'s Bible, I, I got upset. And I got upset because you don't play with Martin Luther King Jr. and you don't play with his people. And by his people, what I mean is people of good conscience, fundamentally committed to peace and truth and justice, and especially the black tradition that produced it. All the blood, sweat, and tears that went into producing a Martin Luther King Jr. generated a brother of such high decency and dignity that you don't use his prophetic fire as just a moment in a presidential pageantry without understanding the challenge that he presents to all of those in power, no matter what color they are. No matter what color they are. So the righteous indignation of a Martin Luther King Jr. becomes a moment in political calculation. And that makes my blood boil. Why? Because Martin Luther King Jr., he died owing to three crimes against humanity he was wrestling with. Jim Crow, traumatizing, terrorizing, stigmatizing black people, lynching and so forth, not just segregation, the way the press likes to talk about. Second, carpet bombing in Vietnam, killing innocent people, especially innocent children. That's both a war crime Martin Luther King Jr. was willing to die for. And thirdly was poverty of all colors. He said it's a crime against humanity for the richest nation in the history of the world that has so many of its precious children of all colors and living in poverty and especially on the chocolate side of the nation and on Indian reservations and brown barrios and yellow slices and black ghettos then. We call them hoods now, but ghettos then. So I said to myself, okay, nothing wrong with putting the hand on the Bible. Even the Bible's talking about justice and Jesus is talking about the least of these. But when he put in Martin's Bible, I said, this is personal for me, because this is a tradition that I come out of. This is a tradition that, that's connected to my grandmother's prayers and my grandfather's sermons and my mother's tears and my father's smile. And it's over against all of those in power who refuse to follow decent policies. So I say to myself, Brother Martin Luther King Jr., what would you say about the new Jim Crow? What would you say about the prison industrial complex? What would you say about the invisibility of so many of our prisoners? So many of our incarcerated, especially when 62% of them are there for soft drugs, but not one executive of a Wall Street bank gone to jail. torture under the Bush administration at all. Then what you say about the drones being dropped 
on our precious brothers and sisters in Pakistan and Somalia and Yemen. Those are war crimes, just like war crimes in Vietnam. Martin Luther King Jr., what would you say? My voice hollers out, then don't tame it with your hand on his Bible. Allow his prophetic voice to be heard. Martin, what would you say about the poverty in America now, beginning with the children and then the elderly, then our working folk and all color, not just here, around the world. Don't hide and conceal his challenge. Don't tame his prophetic fire. So as much as I'm glad that Barack Obama won, I think that Barack Obama would have been a catastrophe, and I understand why. Brother Newt told the truth of about vampire capitalism, but that's true for the system as a whole, not just Mitt Romney in that regard. But when Barack Obama attempts to use that rich tradition of Frederick Douglass and Ida B. Wells Barnett, use the tradition of A. Philip Randolph, use the tradition of Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, use the tradition of Tom Hayden and so many others struggling to produce that voice that pushed Martin in the direction that he did, I get upset. People say, oh, Brother West, there's Smiley and West hating Obama. No, no. We just loving the tradition that produced Martin Luther King Jr. And we're not going to allow it to be in any way sanitized, deodorized, and sterilized. We want the subversive power to be heard. That's what made me think when he said he's going to put his hand on that Bible. As you can imagine, he didn't get an invite uh, to the inauguration um, after that, and you can uh, I guess why. But you get a sense of the prophetic, dealing with the history, addressing issues of justice, tracking the contradiction, engendering hope, promoting the empathy. So let's use that now to then investigate three case studies. Now, these aren't completely empirically accurate. I've gone on the basis of the most popular, which isn't always the best way to find the truth or collect data. But just for the sake of the time that we have, I've just looked at the most popular artists within a given moment within these three genres and just held up this, these metrics to them. So we're going to start off, first of all, with contemporary gospel. Is contemporary gospel music prophetic? And if, if so, how so? Well, let's have a look at the best-selling single by a gospel group last year. It was the Kingdom Choir and their version of Storms' Blinded by Your Grace. I'm just going to play you a minute of this. Well, you probably get the gist of that if you know um, Thomas is strong. Blinded by your grace. Lord, I've been broken. Although I'm not worthy, you fixed me. I'm blinded by your grace. You came and saved me. Lord, I've been broken. Although I'm not worthy, you fixed me. Now I'm blinded by your grace. This song is fundamentally about personal faith. It's classic, an ex example of evangelical Christianity. An individualized faith, faith where the focus is upon one's relationship with the deity. And in this case, the song expresses a sentiment of joy, of being overwhelmed, being in the power and presence of God. But in terms of the prophetic, it completely fails. The most that we can appropriate from this that registers prophetic thought is a sense of hope. The idea that being blinded by God's grace, being in the presence of God, transforms the individual. It's a moment of liminality which allows one to envisage oneself in a different way. And through that process of recreation, there is always hope. That may be as good as it gets. And I would contend that's true 
for most contemporary gospel music, rarely does it venture beyond personal faith and individual salvation. So it scores pretty lowly in terms of the prophetic. Let's move on then to our case study number two. Let's look at, at, at grime backslash hip-hop in Britain. And let's go to Wretch 32. Why Wretch 32? For two reasons. One, he's one of the few hip-hop artists in Britain who has a background in the church. He was raised in the Pentecostal church tradition, left the church in his early teenage years to pursue a career in music. Plus, he's also related to black politicians in Britain and black activists. And some of these activists, he samples within his album. So you've got somebody who's already merging ideas from Christianity with socio-political issues. So there's, there's potential here for engaging with the prophetic. In his last album, Growing Into Hope, there's a track called Liberation. And in this track, he cleverly weaves in words, ideas, and statements that register just about all of the themes within the prophetic. Again, I'm just going to play you a minute of this. Okay, so what does he do in terms of the prophetic? The song deals with issues around police, policing, criminalization of young black men, the failure of the criminal justice system, and why that is the case. So automatically, he's dealing with questions of contradiction, looking at race and criminal justice. He also has a great sense of empathy. The visuals within the song uh, suggest a community of people involved in a particular uh, situation. There's also a tracking of hypocrisy. There's one line within the song where he talks about being shaped like gorillas, and that's why they kill us, dealing with the whole issue of racialization of black bodies within the criminal justice system. And there's hope. There's a sense of hope within the video. People get freed. The whole idea of liberation and the, the freeing of the young people symbolically gesturing towards the idea of a better life to come, a better criminal justice system or people who have been hardly uh, dealt with within the criminal justice system experiencing some kind of emancipation and freedom. So my, my contention is that Rep 3.2 does it within this track. He touches on all the aspects of prophetic criticism, and that track in particular has that, has that value. Although there are references to gangs and to guns, and some people would argue that that weakens the prophetic focus, and therefore we need to be aware of how that theme is interwoven with the prophetic, and that it can be um, read as being problematic. Let's go to the third example. Let's try Christian drill, because after all, surely, if there are Christians within the church who are deeply committed to the things of the Bible, including the prophetic, then surely this should be like second nature, folding the prophetic into, into drill music. Well, we're going to look at um, a group called the Hope Dealers and their track, Trap Mash. And you know, Trap Mash is slang for hangover of sorts. Okay, Trap Mash, uh, Hope Dealers. Uh, if you know anything about Hope Dealers, uh, you'll know that they're connected to a church in London, Spack Nation, which has a very young, dynamic congregation with at least 30 to 40% of the congregation having a history uh, with the criminal justice system. So the focus of the ministry, the focus of the music is very much about engaging hard-to-reach young people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, that, and that's reflected to a degree in the lyrics where they're talking about the power of church on Sunday, fireworks on Monday, the whole idea that church 
is a form of trap mash. It's a powerful hangover, but this time the hangover isn't caused by any kind of illicit substances. It's caused by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. So they can say they're in a place of power, uh, and they're not interested in other powers, but the power of the Holy Spirit. And the whole idea here is, is to show that their life in Christ is radically different, but has some similarities to their life um, outside of Christ. A critical issue, obviously, here again, are the, is the allusion to materialism and the need to foreground the trappings of wealth within this salvific narrative. It suggests that hope here, as one of the prophetic character characteristics, is, is materialism. What is there to hope for within the work of Rex 3.2, the hope is a change in the criminal justice system or structural change. The hope here is materialism. Getting your slice off the pie now rather than waiting uh, till you die. Also, there is a sense of empathy here, but the empathy is quite focused and nuanced. It's about engaging with marginalised young people who have been brutalised or terrorised by the, the social system. So there's a degree of the prophetic within hope dealers, but only a limited sense of hope and a limited sense of empathy. So where does that leave us then in terms of thinking about this relationship between the prophetic and black urban music? Well, quite clearly, rap does it. Rap is the prophetic voice within black urban communities. That prophetic voice isn't necessarily coming out of the church at this point in time. And therefore, what Christian people need to do, what theologians who are committed to the prophetic need to do, is nurture and encourage a Christian musical prophetic tradition. And this is partly part of the motivation for my current, my current research project, which is to politicise gospel music, to inscribe the prophetic within urban gospel music so that it does the work that rap is doing at this point in time. And what I want to do in closing is leave you with an example of this project. The example is a track called Incarnation. And this track works on three levels. The first is the visual. The visual level tells the story of black deaths in custody. It's an attempt to track the hypocrisy, the fact that the criminal justice system does not work for you as well if you are a black or brown person. There are problems there that are well documented. The second level, which is in the themes of the song, the song tells the story of the Windrush generation, their experience of coming to Britain full of hope and optimism, optimism but having those hopes dashed and their dreams deferred, and having to deal with the harsh reality of being second-class citizens within, within Britain. On a third level, the track engages with questions of the incarnation. The incarnation is God becoming flesh. And if God becomes flesh, then by extension, all flesh is good and has the potential to reflect and engage within the divine. But the, the narrative of the song, part of it, where, where I come in, there are very few of these where I do anything, I leave it to professional singers. Where I come in, we wrestle with that, we contest the meaning of the incarnation. So throughout, it's prophetic because there are elements of charting the contradiction, the empathy, you'll see, with people who have suffered. There's also hope, which is reflected in the visual dimension as well. So you'll see how we weave the prophetic into this. I should just say, the 
part of this was funded, part of the project was funded by the Bible Society of Great Britain and Ireland, and they funded it because we sample audio from the Jamaican New Testament. The Bible Society spent 20 years in Jamaica translating the New Testament into um, Jamaican language. Uh, it's called a patois, but you'll know from linguistics, patois is derogatory and um, isn't necessarily the way in which the language works. It's not a patois or a pidgin, it's much more sophisticated than that. So we sample elements of that which are punched into the narrative. Okay, you can see what we're trying to do there. Um, you can download the lyrics. Um, it's online, Jamaican Bible Remix. But again, dealing with the history, the history being a part of the prophetic, and in this case, combining two historical experiences, first generation Windrush experience of discrimination, and, for, and layering that with continued issues of discrimination in terms of black experience within the criminal justice system. Also taking seriously the question of empathy, reaching out and engaging with this issue because it matters. Um, deaths of black people in custody, Windrush, it matters. Showing a sense of empathy and connection, but not stopping there. Charting the hypocrisy, the contradictions in terms of how people are treated within the country, and also how incarnational theology is problematic. If God dwells in all flesh, how come... When that message gets taken around the world, it becomes hierarchical. There's something contradictory at work there. But finally, engendering hope and attempting to do that through the imagery in particular. If you know anything about Pentecostal spirituality, charismatic spirituality, the infilling of the spirit is the, point, is the high point of the service and the moment of transformation, the moment of radical hope. So having those images towards the end of the piece, underlining the importance of hope and uh, for the future, and focusing on young people as a, a symbol of that. So trying to put the prophetic back within gospel music rather than just leaving it outside of the church and within hip-hop. Not that that's a bad thing, but as the prophetic tradition traditionally resides within the Judeo-Christian tradition, it should be something that the church community um, takes seriously. So um, just to conclude then, we've considered Nips's claim uh, regarding the prophetic being with hip-hop, we've parsed the prophetic, a thought from three contemporary UK genres and worked out, if you buy my argument, that contemporary rap has more prophetic within it than uh, gospel or even trap gospel music. And um, finally, that in order to compete and engage with the prophetic, it's necessary for the, the church to, to have a, a new genre. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the AKC podcast. If you have enjoyed this lecture, please click subscribe in your podcast app to receive future episodes. AKC, at the heart of King's thinking.